everyone, and welcome to another exciting episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette, Jessica Fletcher's favorite Murder, She Wrote podcast. I'm your co-host, Bridget Keys, And I'm TJ West. And we are talking today about the season two episode, If a Body Meet a Body. Uh, TJ, you know what to do. Take it away. All right. So in this episode, Jessica and Seth and Amos are all getting ready to attend the funeral of one of the local residents of Cabot Cove. Unfortunately, as it turns out, the person in the coffin is not who we thought it was. <laughs> and so we have to, that starts a whole chain reaction. Jessica has to figure out like who's in the coffin. <laughs> Where's the guy who was originally supposed to be in there? Who, as it turns out, was still alive, but is subsequently not. And so all sorts, there's all sorts of stuff with an investment deal. There's obviously the usual zaniness involved with Cabot Cove and all of its delightful residents. There's lots of Seth and Amos sparring. <laughs> Seth seems to take a particularly large amount of pleasure in needling poor Amos. And for his part, Amos really wants to solve this crime on his own. Clearly, that's not what happens. So it's just, it's another <laughs> fantastic Cabot Cove gazette. And I have to say, like, when I saw that it was going to be in Cabot Cove, I thought, oh my God, yes inject it straight into my veins because anytime there's another Cabot Cove episode I'm just like I'm gonna enjoy this hour of television I know I just I still cannot get over why the writers and producers and the stars of this show like these episodes the least they are the most fun episodes this one is as as you said it's just kooky it's like a casket gets knocked over at a funeral and it's the wrong body and then we see the guy's actually alive, and then he turns up dead, and then the body's missing again. It's just like it's um it's just this really madcap sort of storyline. And yet I think makes more narrative sense than the one from last week. <laughs> Which I think is true of the Cabot Cove episodes in general. I think they tend to make more sense as stories. Because there's not as many moving pieces usually and not as much, you know, there's not as much need to explore the outside world. And so I think it enables them to be a little more coherent, which as a narrative kind of person, like I like good, strong stories. That's part of the reason I find these episodes so appealing. So I thought we should actually start at the ending of this one, just because everything we learn along the way we learn is incorrect, you know, and so it's actually easier to start at the ending, which is that Connie, the widow, murdered her husband. Uh, and she did it because they were supposed to have staged his death so they could run off to San Francisco together with his insurance money. Um, but he was sleeping around with someone he told her he is done having an affair with, and she was not happy about that. Yep. So she clubbed him in the head with a piece of pipe. So it's actually like when you hear it that way, it's like, this is a pretty simple story. But of course, along the way, it's like totally bananas. <laughs> totally and Connie bananas. is so clever. What I love about this episode is that Amos is actually her alibi for the time of Henry's real death um, because she had asked Jessica and Amos to come over and have dinner after the funeral. And she said she's really struggling with being lonely and they have dinner with her. And Jess is like, I got to write a book. I cannot stay. And Amos is like, I'll stay and watch a movie with you. And so it seems like she couldn't have left the house. She was with the sheriff. But of course, the sheriff fell asleep and she sneaked out and killed her husband. Right. I will say, I mean, I appreciated this denouement, but I, I will say that it, felt, it did feel... And that wasn't that a nice little grace note, which I had to take an aside and say I did not use in the last episode. I'm sure Bridget appreciated that I did not use the grace note. I need convention. to keep a running list because it's been like three episodes now and I don't have them written down anywhere. I know. I was I could I could feel the urge to do it last week and I just didn't find <laughs> I couldn't find the right opportunity, so I just thought I'd take it now before I forget. 
Listeners, this is your chance. Please rate and review our podcast and make a comment about how you'd like not to hear Grace. And or say how much you love that we have a running (laughs) gag, which is kind of our thing. (laughs) Anyway, um, I I felt like it it didn't land. I mean, it made sense, I should say, narratively. But performatively, it kind of lacked a certain punch. Like, I'm not sure how else to put it. Like, it just felt like Connie's confession didn't have as much weight as I would have expected. For one thing, because she tries to threaten Jessica with a piece of pipe, which (laughs) of all the threats that Jessica has faced over a season and over almost two seasons now, seems to me the least actually threatening. For two reasons. One, okay, Connie, you're literally gonna just club Jessica to death in your front yard in in broad daylight. Number one. And Two, that Jessica's just going to stand there while you... Cl- I mean, I, 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 I was like, have you seen Jessica? Like, she's always... So your point is that, like, hitting someone only works with if it's surprise. Like, if you tell them, I am now going to hit you with a piece of pipe and murder you, they're probably going to start running. Or, as I... You know, Jessica works out. Like, she's... It's not like she's some frail old lady. It's not Miss Marple. Like, she's not going to just stand there. I'm sure that if anybody at Cabot Cove could defend themselves against someone with a pipe, it would be J.B. Fletcher. Now, listen, I am always making fun of the murderers on this show because they are really dumb. But I think in this case, we have to give her a little bit of a pass because she wasn't expecting to get caught. And she certainly wasn't expecting to get caught by her friend. So, and right. So, I guess it uh, just depends on... She's kind of... She's, it's this moment of desperation. Like, I don't know what to do. Here's the pipe. I'll try to kill you. But of course, Amos is right there. Here's the whole confession and grabs the pipe before anything can happen. Right. So, I mean, I guess I'm just wondering how seriously we're supposed to take the threat to Jessica's life. Like, I mean, like I said, it's not like she has a gun. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I, I I don't know. I just felt like of all the threats that Jessica has faced, this one felt rather weak. Okay. Well, Connie is weak. <laughs> Connie sucks. I mean, she's annoying from start to finish. And I'm trying to have sympathy at the beginning because she's in theory a grieving widow at that point. But she is so annoying. She is very And the whole dinner thing and then please stay longer. It's so – I okay, this is where I struggle because I've seen all these episodes too many times. I'm like, is this just like screamingly obvious or – uh, have I seen this too many times? And then when they say like, they make a point of saying what time it is like five times in that scene. And then we learn the guy died sometime between eight and 10 PM. And I'm like, I know immediately I was like, so Connie's going to be Amos's alibi. That's why Amos is staying to watch the movie. Right. But I can't tell if it's just because I've seen the episode too many times. Well, I mean, I mean, I think it may be that, or maybe like I said earlier that like these episodes are constructed in such a way that you could conceivably solve the crime on your own. Like, I don't know that that's true, for example, of last week's episode, where it seems to me like <laughs> nobody, even the writers couldn't solve it. Exactly. Because it feels like in some of the other episodes that we've analyzed, the ones that are set outside Cabot Cove, is that I think sometimes the writers get so caught up in the ornateness of their own plots that they kind of kind of rush to finish it. Because as you I think that you put your finger right on it, that they don't know how to solve it. So they just kind of make something up that doesn't make sense from the story as it's been written. Whereas an episode like this one, I think the clues are such that we can, as audience members, piece it together because it's more written more coherently. Mm -hmm. I think the part of this that we couldn't necessarily figure out um, was the red herring of Ned Olston and the investment scheme. Um, Right. 
So we'll talk about who Nettleston is in a second, because I know we're going to need to spend some time on that as good 1980s TV fans. But so he was um, Henry the Dead Guy's business partner, and they were getting people to invest in building a new medical clinic up on Pleasant Ridge or Pheasant Ridge or some shit. And um, (laughs) he is like, we see him throughout this episode constantly like trying to get more money out of people. And it has a very uh, hairy, you know, Gomez from early season two vibe where he's just like, he's like desperately trying to get more and more money. And he just keeps telling people like, he tells these two townies, well, he's like, well, Jessica invested $100,000, so you should invest a lot too. And then he tries to get more money from Jessica by saying, well, Amos invested his whole retirement savings, which, by the way, is only $40,000. So I'm a little bit right. worried because Amos has previously already tried to retire. <laughs> um, and I think he's going to need a little more money. But never mind. So so it seems like he's really shady. And it seems – and then suddenly the money is gone and he has to stand in front of the entire town and he's like – even the pastor invested all the church money in this scheme, right? And he has to tell these people, like, the money is gone. And so it seems like he's shady motherfucker. Um, but actually, it wasn't him at all. It was that Henry was actually still alive and absconded with the money. So that part, I think, is really tricky right. and a surprise. Yes. Yes. Which, But it, it also, like, at least is narratively tied up. Yeah. Like, oh, yeah. It, yeah. Which I think, it, which which helps me like keep track of what's actually going on in this episode. Which, like I said, as someone who's very story oriented, I really appreciate. <laughs> I don't like feeling when confused at the end of an yeah. episode. <laughs> I I really don't like it. It it rouses great feelings of of animosity <laughs> as a viewer. So the the other components to this story are that um, Jessica is home because she is scrambling to write a book. She has four days to get it done. Um, and I feel her because at the time we are recording this episode, I have four days to finish my book on Murder, She Wrote. Um, and I am very cranky when people are talking to me. <laughs> I just want to work on this book. But of course, she's Jessica and it's Cabot Cove. So people are constantly knocking on her door and calling her. And she's getting flustered. Every scene is basically her starting to type and then getting flustered by an interruption. Except Amos, because Amos says, I think that that random corpse that's not Henry, I think he was murdered. And so I'm going to investigate. And I would like to do this without your help because the townspeople are kind of starting to make fun of me. So God bless him. He's like bound and determined to investigate on his own. And she's like, I really don't care. I'm too busy to care. I mean, if anything... Ca- but then, of course, that unravels, oh, right? Right, of course, because, you know, she can't resist the urge to... Yeah. And he cannot do it without her. That is correct. <laughs> oh, dear Amos. You, you. But because, you know, she's busy, we get lots of Seth and Amos scenes, as you intimated in your summary of the episode. And I was trying to think, I don't believe we've had scenes with just Seth and Amos without Jessica before. I think you might be right. You know, in a, in a, I... I will say that, you know, Seth might be a curmudgeon, but when it comes to judging character, he's usually pretty spot on. And, you know, I think Thinly Veiled might be generous. Contempt for Amos is, like, palpable. (laughs) Oh. And I hate to say this, justified. (laughs) No, it's not. Because at one point he says something and Amos is like... Come on, how stupid do you think I am? Like, I already thought of that. And and it, he had. He'd already even said it to other people. You are the only person I know who would who defend Amos Tupper. <laughs> well, God bless him. He is trying so hard. I know, hard but trying does episode. not equal aptitude, if that's even a word. <laughs> like, 
I mean, you don't get an A for effort in law enforcement. Like, (laughs) (laughs) well, we're sure glad you tried to solve this murder, Amos, but, you know, you botched it. Cabot Cove, Maine has one of the highest per capita murder rates in the world. (laughs) But that Amos Tupper, he's trying. He's trying to figure out who did it. That'll keep people right, safe at yes, night. Yes, that definitely makes you feel very <laughs> safe and secure in your own home when, a- when, the, when the sheriff... Amos Tupper's on the case. <laughs> oh, oh Lord have mercy on us. I think also at one point somebody is pissy at him and they're like, need I remind there's you an that election. there's an election next year? <laughs> it's like, well... Poor Amos. Like, nobody likes him. Nobody trusts him. They're threatening to not re-elect him to on office. On the other hand, their former other sheriff did literally kill someone. So, you know, I guess the, the bar is pretty low. Yeah, right? <laughs> the last guy you guys elected wasn't so hot. I'm just saying. Oh, but anyway. So speaking of shysters, as it were, like, what did you think have to say about Monty Markham, who plays Harry's, or the business partner? Oh, we just thought we should talk about the guest stars because the guy who plays Ned Olsten is Monty Markham, who is probably best known to us. As, of course. <laughs> as queer Golden Girls fans. As, as Clayton Hollingsworth, Blanche's delightfully <laughs> dapper gay brother, Clayton. As I said, Clayton. Who uh, gets married. Married. Gets gay, gay married. married in, in the 1980s. Yep. It's like, wow, that's pretty impressive. It's amazing. Yeah, and I also just think Monty Markham is so charming. Do like, you? I don't. I don't find him particularly handsome. Not he's not my type, but I do find him to just be a very like you know charming kind of fellow. Like this, this is kind of a, a a television kind of charisma that he exudes, even in this role where he's clearly trying to like cover his ass by getting more money investment. And I do enjoy that conversation he has with Jessica, where he's like desperately trying to get her to invest more. And what I really appreciate about that exchange is the way that Jessica is just like, no, thanks, but no. She's very graceful about it. She says, I'm comfortable with the amount of money I have invested. Yep. (laughs) Which, I mean, there are some moments where, like, I feel we see just a bit of the real Angela coming through. And given what you've related to me about some of your own sort of research into the Angela behind the mask, as it were... I felt like in this, in that telephone exchange, we got a little bit of what Jessica might have, or what, sorry, Angela might have been like in real life, but gracious, but perhaps firm when necessary. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I remember watching this episode many, many years ago and um, that moment when she says, I'm comfortable with the amount I have invested as like a polite, no, go away, leave me alone, quit pressuring me, uh, don't ask again. It's like one of those moments where it, I thought consciously, like, you know, she could be a person that I think of when I'm trying to figure out what to do in a situation. And there are many moments like that where I will think, like, what would Jessica Fletcher do in this situation? Because she always handles things with so much grace, but, like, she's never a milquetoast. She she doesn't let people run over her. Like, she stands up for what she wants, but she doesn't do it in a way that is off-putting ever. Uh, And it just... Yeah, I just remember like watching this like 20 years ago and I'm like, oh, that's how you do that. Okay. It's the value of etiquette. Like, I feel like that's something we sometimes forget in our culture that this is why etiquette exists is to help us like manage awkward social situations to be like when someone's trying to get us to invest, you know, however much it's what $60,000 or some shit to be like, I'm comfortable with what I've invested. Thank you very much. Like, you know, you don't have to be brusque. You don't even have to be like aggressive about it. You can just say that. 
and let it go with that. Like, it's really quite yeah. a good, as you say, it's really quite an object lesson in manners. Yeah, she's great. JB, maybe, maybe we should, I mean, we, maybe we should, like, in addition to the JB Fetcher Fashion Corner, do JB's Guide to Etiquette. Like, <laughs> oh my God, that would actually be a really good book. I would buy it. Yep. Um, you know, the other, the thing where she falls down in this episode is that she is very politely telling people, I really need to get back to my book. And then they're like, no, but I need this thing from you. And then she's like, oh God, okay. Uh, so every time she's in Cabot Cove, you know, she really, people, number one, people do not respect her writing time, which is very rude because she's not like a hobby writer. Right. She's a multimillionaire bestselling author. You guys need to, when she says she's working, it's a job, leave her alone. But she also doesn't seem to protect her own time as a writer. Right. And I think this is, you know, one of those moments where the show is very skilled at demonstrating like what the writing life is like, but also what small town life is like. Is small town life like that? Like people knocking on your door, getting in your business all the time? Well, I I mean, yeah, essentially. I mean, and I've never had that kind of life anywhere. small town life in the 1980s in particular, because one of the things Mm -hmm. I'm thinking about, you know, and we've talked a lot on this show about like technology and how technology enables certain kinds of stories to, to, to be told in this show. And it's, you know, it's interesting to me that, you know, so many of these are phone calls and this is an era mm-hmm. before we can silence our phone. I mean, we could take it off the hook, I suppose. But well, she could have just taken it off the hook or unplugged sure, it. Sure, but then you might forget, and then like an emergency could happen. Exactly. Yeah. Whereas with a cell phone, you could silence it and then you know yes. later return. So it was one of those moments where like murder short as a text kind of helps us realize how much life has changed in the last 40 years or so like i that mm-hmm. I, I find that kind of thing really fascinating the telephone itself i think was it was reminiscent of the pilot i mean there's um in the pilot we see her like going out to do something and the phone will ring and she has to rush back inside and there's um there's just always a sense with her and the phone that you must answer it you can't let it keep ringing you can't just ignore it um which it doesn't have to be the case like after like the third or fourth phone call i was just like in my notes like honey you do not have to pick up like if it's bothering you so much that all these people are calling just stop answering but that's not how jessica works and it's also just not how like 80s like the american culture has changed so much when it comes to attitudes to phone calls that's true <laughs> i mean the doorbell rings era- we ignore it <laughs> we hide <laughs> the phone rings we don't answer it i mean that's i mean and also like if you have an actual like rotary phone that's ringing like you can't like can't function like you can't ignore it because it's so loud. Okay, but hers wasn't a rotary; it was a push button. Oh uh, well, whatever. I mean, like the point. Although is, in other in other episodes, it is a rotary. Right, I couldn't remember, but I mean, now like, that I think it, about it, it's a landline. Like it's going yeah. to be loud. <laughs> it's loud. Yeah, you can't just put it on yeah. vibrate and set it in another room. Like, <laughs> but I, you know, it is just indicative. Like you said, it's also small town life. You don't you're because Jessica is so firmly like intertwined with the life of Cabot Cove, I don't think it would ever occur to her to just kind of ignore her neighbors. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So I, I find that, I, I find that particularly just interesting as an aspect of her character and of Cabot Cove as a place. Yeah. So let's talk a little bit about the hitchhiker's body that ends up in the casket, shall we? Like I, I really need yes. to, I, I need to talk about this. Okay. So, so let's start at the beginning. So when Connie and Henry were going to run off to San Francisco and cash in his insurance, uh, it happened because someone, they found a hitchhiker and the hitchhiker, they offered a ride, but then he died. 
And that's where this idea came from, right? And so they were going to pr- – Connie pretends that the, his body is her husband's body. And she's going to have it cremated because they're not a home in Cabot Cove. And then that way in Cabot Cove, no one will see his body at the funeral. And then she'll get away with this whole plan. Right. But I have so many – I mean, because it's one of those moments because this is all related in flashback. So it's really only Connie's point of view that we have as viewers. And so I'm just sort of like wondering – did in fact this hitchhiker die of a heart attack? Like that oh, seems no. awfully convenient. They didn't to me. kill him. This is a cozy episode. I'm just saying. Yeah, that there's a little bit of narrative instability here. Like, and, and I mean, nothing, we have I mean, to trust Connie's flashback. Essentially, right, is which, what you mean? Yeah, I mean, she's already. I mean, and she kills Henry. So, like, it's not like she's a particularly reliable or you know moral person. That's so a good point. If anybody, if anybody's capable of you know, and they were conspiring to like you know run away. So, I mean, I'm just saying it's possible. I think more grotesque, though, are two things. One is that um, the hitchhiker dies, like, during the day. And they check into a motel, and she tells the receptionist her husband isn't feeling well there by laying the seeds that he could have, you know, plausibly died. And they wait for nighttime, she tells us, and they drag his body and put it in bed with her. And I'm just thinking, like, I I don't want to get too gory here, but, like, that body has been dead for several hours by this point. I mean, this is, if you really start to think about what happens to bodies after they die, this is really disgusting and horrifying and grotesque. And so there's, a, I think, a physical horror to this that isn't explored in the episode, of course, because it's, you know, supposed to be like a lighthearted episode. But the second part of it is we never find out who he was and who his family was. And is anybody missing him? And what what happens to the fact that his life you know, nobody murdered him, but he it, it, his life is over and nobody knows who he is. So nobody's going to be notified. And I think that also is really horrifying emotionally. I mean, not to mention the fact that there's a, a little corpse that falls out of a coffin in the middle of a funeral. And like, well, it's, and it's all played for comedy, right. you know, in this episode. Like, and I mean, because I think that's the, the I think that's the deafness of deftness of this episode is that it skates on the top of the true like macabre, like uh, you know, as you know, as you mm-hmm. say, it's played for laughs that the the, the corpse flops out of the, the the coffin, which is legit horrifying, and it is vaguely horrifying when we see Connie Henry like with the body of the hitchhiker like making it into the hotel room like and they're like dragging his body into this hotel room which i mean i i, I had it like i know i know i talk about film noir in this podcast a lot but you know i can't help it and the, i was remembering a similar moment in double indemnity which has some similarities to this just slightly where also we get like an unreliable potential unreliable narrator so i don't know there's just there's this, an element of as you say horror underneath of all of the sort of lighthearted, cozy cabot cove ethos the other piece of it that is um not too deeply explored although it was important to the story is that henry's been having an affair with the waitress from the truck stop phyllis and phyllis bursts into the funeral and accuses connie of murdering her husband uh and it's when amos goes to silence her that they bump into the casket but i think you know the fact that he was having this affair and she really loved him and um he told Connie the affair was over, but it wasn't. And then Connie frames her by putting Henry's body in her house while she's at work. Mm-hmm. So that all is also really uh, – could be full of grief, full of angst, horrifying, and it's all kind of glossed over. And, of course, you know, the, 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 the climax of it all is that Jessica tricks Connie into exposing herself by saying that the 
crystal is missing from Henry's watch. Mm-hmm. And that's when, you know, Connie tries to find it in her home, like at the, in, under her porch. But of course, it's not there. Where Henry never would have been, right? Because he was in hiding elsewhere right. and then turned up dead at the waitress's house. So why would his watch crystal be at her house? Yep. And so I enjoyed that. And I also enjoyed the conversation that Jessica has with the waitress. Because like the waitress like, I know you're not, we're not friends because I'm so much lower than you on the social ladder and evoking like what i said about small town life like those are the kinds of like hierarchies that structure small town life but to jessica's credit she's like oh don't be silly like you know Mm -hmm. again we see jessica as this innately gracious person which i really appreciate about the cabot cove episodes is that they allow us to see jb in her natural habitat as it were and it gives her an opportunity gives us an opportunity to see her graciousness which is obviously in evidence in other episodes outside of Kevin but in particular helps us to see just kind of like why she would be so beloved because she really mm-hmm. does see people as people, not as where they live as far as like their occupation or other kind of social markers. Like she, and you know, she doesn't believe that this person is guilty just because she was, you know, the other woman who was also mm-hmm. a, a, you know, a waitress at the truck stop. So that is consistent with what we've seen of Jessica before, because in the Joshua Peabody Inn episode, um, we know that she was friendly with Cornelia, who's the waitress at the diner. Yep. Um, So that's consistent with her character. But did you know that was also written into the series Bible? I did not know that. It was part, it was written into the series Bible that Jessica is friendly and courteous and gets along with people of all social classes. She is never to be a snob. She does not think she is better than anyone. I love that. Like, I, I, I mean, mm-hmm. I do. Like, it's just, it is one of the most heartwarming aspects of the show that mm-hmm. Jessica is just so humanist. Like, she's a, a profound humanist. And I really, I think that's a value that's really, I'm telling you, we should write a book. J.B. Fletcher's Guide to Life. Like, this would be a bestseller. <laughs> Um, and I think, but the flip side of that, of course, is that it was also written in that because she gets along with all social classes, she can also get along with royalty, right? Right. Like she's um, just as good at being in the in elite social circles. But yeah, definitely when she's at Cabot Cove, we see that she's, I think it's really nice too, because by this point, you know, she's been a famous author for like two years and she still has her house and she still talks to people at the diner and the truck stop. And she's just, she, it's, it's cool that she doesn't think she's better than these people because of her success. So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I liked that aspect, and you know, I I thought Connie made a good antagonist as well. As you say, she's very annoying, but gosh, she's so annoying. It's also the actor. I mean, I'm sorry, um, but like, she just has this weird affect. It's true. Oh, Jessica, uh, would you stay for dinner? I just oh, and it's like oh, shut up. So you were glad when it was revealed that she was the murderer. <laughs> Or maybe the actor was doing that intentionally because she's the bad guy. I don't know. Right. I, I never suspected Phyllis, the woman with whom Henry was having the affair, of anything bad. Um, which is interesting, right? Because she's like, you know, the other woman should be the bad lady. But I did think it was very strange that she's supposed to be of some sort of lower social class, but she's like an absolute total glamour girl. Of course. That part is a little bit unbelievable. <laughs> right. Having been to some truck stops, I did find that rather straining credulity, but 
<laughs> yeah. She's like perfect hair, perfect makeup. She's very well put together. And then her house is like, here's some wood paneling. Yeah. I'm poor. Yeah, right. It's like, I mean, if you've worked at, if okay. you've worked at as a, as a in food service, particularly at a truck stop, let me tell you, you do not have time to fix your hair that nicely. But anyway, we don't need to. But I did think also, like, you know, Connie's not just like a complete villain. Like, she clearly loved Henry and hated Cavett Cove. Um, which is yeah but tj i'm sorry like this woman let her entire town attend a funeral knowing full well that her husband wasn't dead and she plays the part of the grieving widow and just soaks in all their condolences that is sick it is how sick, could yeah. you do that to your beloved friends that is sick although we, as we learned like she really doesn't like cabot cove so it doesn't seem particularly <laughs> like out of the realm of possibility for this character <laughs> to do that <laughs> Why does she hate Cabot Cove? I don't know. You know how some people are. Yeah. Snobs. She clearly wasn't born there because. Yeah. That's, who would that, hate Cabot Cove? As I say, that's not the kind of people that Cabot Cove raises. Let me tell you that. What else? <laughs> is that it? I mean, we're running at 30 minutes. Wrap it up. So, huh. All Come I got to tell you is if I hear people talking about going up to Farnsdale one more time in this episode. Going up to Farnsdale. Yeah, everything happens in Farnsdale. I'm telling you, though, this is another thing that's very true of, like, small town life. Like, you go up to blah, blah, blah. Like, mm. or go down to blah, blah, blah. Mm-hmm. Wherever, the, wherever the smallest or biggest, nearest big town is. You know, I got to go down to Wheeling, as we would say back home. Or I got to go down to Moundsville. TJ, what's the population of Cabot Cove? Uh, that's a good, is there a sign in this episode that tells us? Because I have a it's feeling. It's the first thing we see, yeah. I've forgotten. 3,560. That's three times larger than my hometown. And West Virginia. Okay. We got to go now, you guys. I can't. I. That's it. That's on that note. We got to end. Three times larger? My hometown has fewer than a, fewer than a thousand people. It has like 980 something or other. We didn't even talk at all about um, the, the stupid priest or the um, daughter and her blueberry farmer. But I think that's fine. They're all kind of tangential to the plot anyway. Oh, yeah. We, but yeah. But Okay. Well, anyway. Right. <laughs> if you want... To see shenanigans with mixed up corpses. This is definitely the episode for you. It's true. It is. <laughs> so what do we think? Is it a, a thumbs up or thumbs down episode? It's a, a total thumbs up for me. Well, it's a thumbs up if you want to see shenanigans with corpses. I mean, who doesn't really? It's sp- <laughs> I mean, as we're recording this, it's spooky season. Who doesn't want to see shenanigans with corpses? <laughs> corpses. <laughs> I guess these corpses aren't dancing at midnight, but even so. <laughs> and on that note... um. How do we normally wrap this up? Oh, yeah. I'm Bridget Keys. And I'm TJ West. No, we. I, this has been another episode of the Cabot Cove Gazette. <laughs> what are you Goodbye. <laughs> Our theme song is Reaching the Sky by Alexander Nakarada, used under Creative Commons license. You can find us on social media. We are the Cabot Cove Gazette on Facebook and at Cove Gazette on Instagram and Twitter. 